Before you listen to this great new episode of Albums Are Dead, a few quick plugs. Go subscribe to us on iTunes, search for Albums Are Dead there, and we will pop up for you. Or head over to Mixcloud and do a search for Albums Are Dead. Our back catalog is there for you to listen to anytime on demand. Eventually, we're going to be on Spotify and Google. Do a search for us anyways, because we're going to pop up at one of those places eventually. We do have a website. It's albumsaredead.com. We are on all of the social medias. On Twitter, we are at Albums Are Dead. We are on Facebook. Give our page a like. It's Albums Are Dead. What do you know? We're also on Instagram. Again, Albums Are Dead, and you will find us. And support the artists. Go listen to their music. Go download it legally or stream it legally, please. The artists and their record labels, they're all big and super rich, but they still need your support, and we should do it the right way. We, of course, make no money from doing this show. It's all about the love of music. Let's go love some music together. Here's the next episode of Albums Are Dead. Um, my great-grandma's name um, was Pearl. And um, I've got some Indian in me. And it turns out that, that she used to make this kind of hallucinogenic preserve that... Uh, I wish it was passed down through the family. If it if it was, it was stopped about a generation before me. I never got to taste any myself. But I'm still in search of that elusive recipe for Pearl Jam. Albums are dead. Oh, hero. Uh, the dead podcast on your listening on your speaker. <laughs> well, look at you. I'm very excited, obviously. Very psyched up. Uh, we are episode nine this week with your pals Slip with Five Eyes or Slip. I'm at Megamix.com on the old Twitter. This What's is up? This is your week. We're talking about Pearl Jam. I imagine that you're going to need the whole hour. Should we get right into it? I think so. I, I, I totally, uh, I, I think we should get started as soon as possible to jam it all in. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I'm going to put it over to you right away. Let's uh, let's talk yeah, about Pearl Jam's yeah. 10, an, a, a, an album that we have teased for multiple weeks. Yes, we have, and I'm glad we're finally able to deliver it. I, I'm finally able to, to get the work done uh, and, uh, and and present this. So... Pearl Jam's 10, um, released August 27th, 1991 on Epic Records, a Sony Music subsidiary. Um, here's just a quick tale of the tape, and then uh, we'll do our usual uh, breakdown. Um, 10, peaked at number two on the Billboard 200 on August 22nd, 1992, but could not topple Billy Ray Cyrus's Some Gave All. <laughs> hey, with good reason. <laughs> Uh, it spent three weeks at number two. Um, in February 2013, the album crossed the 10 million mark in sales, becoming the 22nd one to do so in the Nielsen Sound Scan era. Um, it's been certified 13 times platinum by the RIAA. Uh, the album spent a total of 261 weeks on the Billboard charts, making it one of the top 15 charting albums ever. 
1993, it was the eighth best-selling album in the United States, outselling Pearl Jam's second album, Versus, in that year. Um, uh, makes sense, though, Versus was out later in the year, but still, still a good uh, a good accolade for this album. Uh, considered a grunge rock standard bearer, uh, Pearl Jam had more of a classic rock feel than its contemporaries like Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains. Uh, ten uh, uh, achieved uh, quite a bit. Uh, as a as a debut album and some uh, it was a uh, a monster um, for me personally I mean it obviously goes without saying I'm a I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan uh, I believe uh, you know it kind of goes back and forth one of you know when we we did on our on our sister show Mezzanine Sleepover we counted down our 25 top favorite artists of all time I think I had them number two uh, it's with a bullet uh, one of my favorites um, this is one of my personal favorite albums uh, that being said I am partial to Pearl Jam's second album, Versus. But uh, upon going back and listening to this cover to cover for the show, amazing. Uh, for me, I guess, uh, personally, uh, Nirvana and Suicidal Tendencies kind of bumped me out of my hip-hop-dominated music bubble in like 1991, 92. But 10 uh, kind of expanded the horizons of all the possibilities of the out-rock genre. <laughs> you can tell I wrote that down. Oh my goodness. Uh, yes. You must love this band. Cassette. You must love this band because you wrote yourself a script to cover the, the, I did. the this album. It's like it's like WWE. You have to stick to the script. Can I give you a some inside info? Can I give you a can I can I shoot for for a second? Yes. I write scripts every time for this show. Oh shit! Every single time. So this one's just a bit longer, but I write scripts. Uh, that I read from, and so I have reminders of myself to slow down and make sure that I don't <laughs> read it too fast, so I don't sound like, you know, uh, like a robot. Um, I bought Ten on cassette in September 1992, so I was late to the party. Um, I, fun fact, I used my HMV cassette club card. Uh, I bought Ten, and I got my last stamp. So then I got the free Temple of the Dog tape for free. Nice. So I'm very excited. I remember bringing it to the Y. Uh, and seeing Dennis Penis and proudly showing it off. Nice. Uh, and uh, a fun fact for uh, I am uh, uh, if you go to uh, megamix.com.wordpress.com, you can see all my mixes um, from way back in the day. Uh, every single song from this album uh, made it onto a mixtape. So it's got that going for it as well. Um, tell me a bit about your uh, your 10 experience. Uh, I'm not nearly the... Actually, I'm the biggest Pearl Jam fan on the show. Shut the hell up. Number one Pearl Jam fan on the mezzanine sleepover and albums are dead. Me, the slip man. <laughs> uh, I am obviously not the same level of Pearl Jam fan as you. Uh, was aware of the you know the top tracks from this album when it came out. Did not actually grab myself a copy of this album until the summer of 1996. I picked it up on Compact Disc. Yes. Um, I... Of all the Pearl Jam albums, it is the one that I'm by far the most familiar with, uh, and I enjoy it cover to cover, and have since picked it up. You know, they had a special reissue on vinyl a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, uh, which I picked up, and uh, really enjoy the album. I have seen uh, Pearl Jam twice in concert, and uh, both times really just accompanying other people who were much more interested in the show <laughs> And I have to admit, two of the best live shows I have ever seen. Now, did you see it with Mistopheles? I did not. You did not. That's, That's right. right. You One went, time with you? you? On the same trip where Mistopheles watched them. That is correct. In 1998, 
Mistopheles took a trip with me to Minneapolis to see Pearl Jam on the Yield tour. Yes. Uh, I did not go to the show. I just opted to uh, go with Alio Gratton to Valley Fair instead. Nice. Uh, and uh, I saw them the first time with the Cajun Man in right. 2004, I'm thinking. Uh, and a second time with you. Uh, I believe I was with you. No. No? Ah, I know who I was with. Uh, anyways, in uh, yes. the late 2000s. I, um, I, of course, have seen them four times. I've talked about this previous, maybe not on this show. Um, I did see them with Mistopheles in Fargo. What, what a venue. Uh, saw them at Gimli in 1993. So that was my most exciting one. You know, when we talk about a band at the height of their powers, um, uh, just previous to releasing their, their, their second album. And then again in 2005 and 2011 here in Winnipeg, um, I did end up getting the CD later on, uh, probably a year later. I got the European version, though, which I'll talk about uh, a little later on the show, um, which was one of my most prized possessions. I also had a few other prized possession uh, Pearl Jam items, which then I left at a uh, short-term girlfriend's house that I had to send you to go and repossess them for me like a sexy repo man. Yes, that is correct. Um, so, you know, I'll probably, uh, there'll be, there'll be many, uh, many things to touch upon in this. Uh, I'm going to get started with a little bit of background, uh, on the making of the album. And then we'll, uh, as usual do, uh, get into the tracks where we play a clip. And then when singing starts, we talk over it. Um, background on the 10, I mean, you talking about Pearl Jam, you, you kind of have to start, um, uh, with Mother Love Bone. Uh, I guess you go far back as Green River, but we're going to start with Mother Love Bone. Uh, Mother, Love Bone Mother Love Bone was a glam-ish rock band founded in Seattle in 1987 by ex-Green River members Jeff Amon, Bruce Fairweather, and Stone Gossard, ex-Malfunction frontman, frontman Andrew Wood, and ex-10-minute warning and skinyard drummer Greg Gilmore. Um, in November 90, 1988, the band signed to Polygram and recorded their debut EP, um, in late 89, the group returned to the studio to record its debut album, Apple, and they had projected for a ni March 1990 release. Uh, I have a little clip of a uh, Mother Love Bone song so you can get a feel for the sound. Hopefully this is the right thing. Is this the right thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's Pearl Jam. <laughs> We got a song, it's called, a song called Star Dog Champion. Uh, Apple, uh, I, I never had the Apple uh, album. I ended up with kind of a compilation that was released after uh, Pearl Jam kind of went big. Um, days before the album Apple was slated to be released, uh, frontman Andrew Wood, who had a long history with drug problems, overdosed on heroin and was left brain dead. After spending two days in the hospital and life support to allow friends and family to say goodbye, Wood died, effectively bringing the group to an end. So they, they disbanded at that point. Um, in the months following his death, uh, Stone Gossard, Jeff Amon, would be approached by Soundgarden frontman Chris Cornell, who had been uh, Andrew Wood's roommate, and asked if they would be interested in recording a single containing two songs he had written in tribute to Andrew Wood. Uh, the project turned into an entire album, and the group took the name Temple of the Dog, which was a reference to a line from the song uh, by Mother Lovebone, uh, the song Man of Golden Words. So uh, during the summer of 1990, how, uh, kind of after that, summer of 1990, Stone Gossard uh, put together a series of instrumental demos 
uh, twofeetthick.com says, uh, within months of the death of Mother Love Bones and Andy Wood in 1990, Stone forged ahead, creating a new band. By the late summer, he had Mike McCready and Jeff Ament in place. They gathered at Reciprocal Recording Studio in Seattle to record Stone's music. The idea was that, in addition to getting the new music recorded, the resulting tracks would help them land a singer and drummer to comp- complete a new band. Soundgarden's Matt Cameron and Chris Friel from McCready's old band Shadow sat in on drums. So they recorded a, um, a fairly comprehensive demo. Um, friend and drummer Jack Irons felt he had the perfect voice for the new group, and he sent the demo down to San Diego, where um, Eddie Vedder, who was in a band called uh, Bad Radio, was working at a gas station on Midnight Shift. Oh, like no, great, like no wonder you love artists. them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have a little clip here of Eddie uh, Vedder and Mike McCready talking about a little bit about this on Headbangers Ball in 1992. Here we go. Now, it's true that there really is a big Seattle scene happening right now with Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and, I mean, even Queens, right? And right. Stuff like that. Well, they're all good people, too, which is, which is great. Now, a lot of you guys, I mean, two of your members that aren't here right now, Stone and Jeff, were in Mother Love Bone right. together. And how did the rest of you guys all kind of hook up? I was, um, I was surfing in San Diego and I heard from my friend Jack, who used to be in the Chili Peppers, and is now in a band called Eleven, which is amazing. But they asked, Stone and Jeff asked him if he wanted to play drums, and uh, he couldn't because of 11, but I got a call to try singing. So I sent up a tape, and all of a sudden I was living in Seattle. <laughs> so you're not really originally from Seattle then, right? No, I'm kind of import. But you are. I am, yeah. So you got kind of wrapped up into this whole Seattle. Yeah. Like I, rock bang now. I'd known Stone for about 10 years. I'd known him for a long time. We used to trade rock pictures and all that <laughs> a long time ago when we were little kids. And now... If I'm not wrong, did you guys used to be called Mookie Blaylock? Yeah. That was you guys, right? Yeah, that was, that us. was us. Okay, now, um, I guess for people that don't know, he was a basketball player on the New Jersey Nets. He's an amazing ball player. And I guess it was a matter of time before they said you had to change the name, right? No, actually, no, actually we just had to, we, had to, we used that for a little while. And actually, we haven't heard, have we heard from his lawyer yet? We, we heard he liked <laughs> it. He, I think he might have felt we, we were a rap fan or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. We heard he liked it, and, and um, but, but... Ultimately, we felt it was kind of a goofy name. And yeah. This is about as goofy as we get. Pearl Jam. Out of your show, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, you're we'll be back and talk to these guys in a bit, and we'll also be playing uh, their video for Alive, so stick around. So it kind of jumps ahead a little bit, talking about uh, the formation of the band. Um, yes, they, they were called Mookie Blaylock. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, uh, twofeetthick.com, one of my one of my references here, uh, has a little bit about uh, the, um, the the demo that was then sent to Eddie Vedder, who then uh, here's kind of the process that he would have probably gone through to 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 record his vocals over that. Uh, Eddie would have dubbed Stone's instrumental demos to another cassette first, then using his four track, he would record his vocals on another track with the instrumentals in his vocals. He would then make a two track copy that could be played on any stereo. Um, what's interesting about this is throughout his Eddie Vedder's demo was would not be made from new blank tapes, but often from pre-recorded cassettes of other artists' actual albums that he recorded over. Um, in this case, he commandeered an advanced cassette of a Merle Haggard best of compilation <laughs> called Greatest Hits of the 80s, which would come out on October 5th, 1990, record over it, and slathered it with whiteout and labeled it for Stone and Jeff. <laughs> uh, this, they would then, uh, you know... Uh, they would uh, create like a, a reasonable facsimile of this for their um, 
their big like 20th anniversary of 10 you could get a box set and get like a a reproduction of the of the cassette um from stone's instrumental demos demos eddie transformed three of these uh songs into what is known as the mama son trilogy uh and a 1992 concert in Zurich, Pearl Jam played the three songs together for the first time, and Ed introduces them these three songs as such. So here's a clip. This is I have to find which this clip called. Uh, it's uh, well, it's probably clip. What? How many clips have I played? Two. The, so the clips. Clip oh, three. You're getting you're getting uh, behind the scenes look, everybody. Uh, the clips you gave me actually come up with their song names. Oh, really? Yep. So is it? Uh, Oh God! Alive, live. Alive, live. Yeah. I asked what language they speak here in Zurich, and I guess there's many of them. Do you understand English when I talk to you? Because yeah. I was going to tell you a little story. The the next uh, three songs. Um, we've never really played them together, but they go together. It's all one story, and um, you want to hear about? Now, I haven't told anybody about this before, and, and uh, I don't want to ruin any interpretations of the songs that you have, you know. But um, it's about uh, it's about incest, and it's about uh, murder, and uh, you know all those good things. And uh, if you can picture it in your mind, the third song takes place in a jail cell. So this is our own little mini opera here. All right. So um, they, of course, go into a live. The, 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 the trilogy is alive once and a, a song called Footsteps. Uh, Footsteps would later be on a uh, the Jeremy single. And it's, yeah, it's a, a little um, alive is supposed to be kind of the... Uh, and we'll we'll get to it in, in in as we go track by track, but it's the part biographical, and then kind of talks about a uh, uh, son who finds out his dad isn't actually his dad, and then his mom uh, seduces him because he looks so much like his actual dad. And then once is the he goes on a killing spree, and footsteps is him on uh, in a jail cell on death row. So, um, alive was originally. Uh, uh, from Stone's uh, Gosser's demo, a song called Dollar Short. Once was uh, at first called Egyptian Cray. Steps was a song called Times of Trouble. Uh, Times of Trouble would also show up on Temple of the Dogs album. And Footsteps, as I said, would be a B-side. Um, on October 22nd, 1990, the band, using the name Uki Blaylock, Hangers Ball with Ricky Rackman and any uh, WCW fans would remember him from uh, <laughs> from some of the days of Nitro. So that would be you. Oh, Big come Nitro on. Yo, I love Nitro. <laughs> um, using the name Mookie Blaylock, they play their first show at the Off-Ramp Cafe in Seattle. Uh, they would play about 17 or so shows before heading to the studio in March 1991. Um, in November 1990, Mike and Eddie joined Stone, Jeff, and Soundgarden's Chris Cornell and Matt Cameron at London Bridge Studios in Seattle. And they begin recording Temple of the Dog album on March 10th, as I said. Um, I didn't say, I said March 91. But on March 10th, 91, Eddie and Jeff go on uh, KISW's New Music Hour and uh, announce that their name, that their their band is now called Pearl Jam. Ooh. So they ditch the uh, Mookie Blaylock name smartly. Uh, 
Uh, this album, of course, is called 10. That was Buki Blaylock's number. So um, they, they had a little nod there. The next day, they head into the studio uh, with uh, producer Rick Parisher. Um, according to a 2016 Rolling Stone article, Pearl Jam were determined to avoid uh, Mother Love Bone's costly excesses and mistakes. Jeff Amon said, I think we spent about $25,000 making 10 and about three times that mixing it. Uh, but it was still a third of the money that we'd spent making the Mother Love Bone record. We didn't expect the record to be a huge deal, but I guess it kind of became one. Uh, on April 16th, 1991, Temple of the Dog is released. And uh, here's, a, here's a standout track from that album. It's called Say Hello to Heaven. Oof, more Pearl Jam. This is great. <laughs> yes! I have to do this show with Kit Tetris. <laughs> <laughs> I love Mother Love Bone. Yes! So it's Pearl Jam with Chris on Bone. Um, I figured out what my issue was with the songs. Usually I deliver them to you with, with my instructions. Yes. But this time I didn't strip out all the, I didn't strip out the ID tags. <sighs> In my no, haste. God, not thinking. You're and so, so you've imported into iTunes and it and it remembers. So excited to present this album that you you fired off tracks that weren't scrubbed properly. Alright. You know, and it's funny because you know, on, on our sister show, The Mezzanine Sleepover, I have to scrub all the IT tags so I can surprise you with music. <laughs> I know. On this one I was hoping to be surprised and then I'm like, wait, this is a bunch of Pearl Jam songs? What's he <laughs> What a shocker. Uh, May 25th, 1991, Dave Cruson's last show with Pearl Jam. He was the drummer. Um, Pearl Jam famously would go through, you know, a good handful of drummers in their, in their, in their tenure, uh, up to date anyway. Um, uh, it was a rap party for the movie Singles at Rock Candy in Seattle uh, from the Wickeye. According to Cruson, he was suffering from personal problems at the time. Cruson said it was a great experience. I felt from the beginning of that band that it was something special. And he added, they had to let me go. I couldn't stop drinking. And it was causing problems. I couldn't get it together. Um, so first album, not even out. Drummer fired. Um, <laughs> it, uh, it's, well, they're still recording it. Um, in June 91, the band joined Tim Palmer in England to mix the album. Uh, August 22nd, 91, they played a show at Rock Candy in Seattle where director Josh Taft filmed footage for the Alive video. Because I, I know how much you love music videos. Oh, what? We've never yeah, talked about so these. We're going to talk about the music videos as we go track by track. Oh, my God. For the first time ever on one of our podcasts, music video yes, conversation. Talking music videos. Okay. Um, <laughs> August 19th, 1991, they have a record release party at Rock Candy in Seattle. August 23rd, Dave Abrazis' first show as the band's new drummer. So uh, by August, they, they're the kind of the... Um, the original lineup is um, is in place. Well, the lineup that would that would that that, that would be in in place until about uh, 1994. Yeah, 94. Um, so for a for two years. <laughs> wow. Uh, so I own the European version of Ten, which has three bonus tracks. It has a live version of Alive, not the one that we played uh, from August 3rd, 91. At Rock Candy, there's a song called Wash that is awesome, and you can play it now. Oh, 
much wash, just a uh, ethereal uh, beauty of a song. Uh, and the third uh, track on that is a song called, uh, well, let's just say it's called Dirty Frank. And if you want to hear the polar opposite of this song, you can play Dirty Frank. a gimmicky funk track uh, written about a bus driver on their tour they thought was crazy. He's crazy! He's crazy! I love the chili peppers. And it's all about how Dirty Frank is going to eat them. So, <laughs> those were the uh, bonus tracks on that version. There are probably other versions kicking around. Obviously there's a reissue which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. Oh, right, we're right now. My notes say 10. Oh. Hold on, hold, hold on. Here we yeah. go. So she relaxed. a little all right. Uh, 10 was reissued on March 4th, 24th, 2009. The album was remastered and remixed by producer Brendan O'Brien. Um, I'm not really a fan. I know the band really didn't like the sound of 10. Uh, as the years went on, they felt it was too reverb-laden and classic rockish. So Brendan O'Brien went in, boosted those fucking levels. You know, loudness war style. I don't like it. Um, it includes several bonus tracks from the band's early days, including songs Just a Girl, 2000 Mile Blues, Evil Little Goat, and my personal favorite, Brother. Here's a little. Whoa! <laughs> See how loud it is? Oh my goodness. That's Brother. Um, I have a theory on, on Brother, that, that, that song that came out on, on, on the 10 reissue. See, um, I have a, um, I didn't have it on CD, but I, had, I have uh, digital tracks of a, a rarity CD they put out in like 95. I had a version of Brother on it. Brother is like, they played Brother at their first show and they probably played it like a handful of times and never played it again for like, you know, 20 years and, um, or almost 20 years. So brother comes out on this disc and I and, and I, I download it and I'm listening to it and I'm like okay this is pretty cool the production quality is not great but it's the original it's the it's the original recording uh, they put this out in the reissue and I swear Eddie better redid the vocals because he changed <laughs> the lyrics first of all and so and it didn't it just kind of he kind of stripped out some of the more embarrassing lyrics because of course brother is you know it's all about big brother. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so there's a few things, but uh, still a standout track. Um, there's er uh, also on this reissue early uh, versions of Breath and State of Love and Trust, which were both appeared on the single soundtrack. Um, according to the Wiki, the 10 reissue sold 60,000 copies in its first week, the second biggest selling week for the album since Christmas 1993. So um, since Billboard considers uh, the 10 reissue a catalog item, 10 did not appear on the Billboard 200, Top Modern Rock Alternative or Top Rock Albums, since those charts do not include catalog items. But had it been included on Billboard 200, the 60,000 copies sold of the 10 reissue would have placed it in the, at number five. So, good job, 10 reissue. That's kind of the background. I mean, there's more. There's, there's a whole bunch more. Again, um, you know, I could probably talk a lot longer, but, um, you know, what's the point? We're trying to keep this to a, a tight hour or so. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's the background on 10. So uh, I'm thinking we do some uh, track by track. Let's do it. What do, you, what do you think? All right. So um, 
Well, let's do it. Let's let's hear uh, let's hear how this album kicks off. Oh, we got <laughs> a classic on our shows. Long intro. Yes, very long intro. But talk about this intro, right? Because it's at the start and at the end. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the track, of course, is once, um, and uh, the song is preceded by a brief interlude. And the interlude is uh, a snippet from the album's hidden track called "Master Slave," "Master Slash Slave." Sorry. And forward so or backslash? <laughs> it's a. Uh, it is a forward slash, I believe. All right. Pretty sure. Forward slash. Yes. So uh, this is once. Uh, you know, I'll just kick into it. I guess. Here we go. But here we go. So, yeah, once, uh, all lyrics uh, on 10 written by Eddie Vedder, uh, once written by Stone Gossard, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the song first appeared on the Stone Gossard demos as Egyptian Crave and was the second track in the Mama Sun trilogy. Um, once was featured as a B-side on the Alive single. Um, I got a lot of stuff on each song, so... Uh, <laughs> Bear with me. I will. Um, I will say this, but like before you go, I will say this is you know it's as as a debut kind of first listen to a band on their debut album. Yes, this is like as an opening track, top five all time. Oh, absolutely! Like the perfect song to kind of start things off here. The fury and the rage. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to you. Go. Um, from the Wiccai, once tells the tale of a man's descent into madness, which leads him to becoming a serial killer. Um, here, here's what you're going to like. On songmeanings.com. Ah, excellent. Commenter no code 79 says. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> He's 69. Yeah. This is 79, <laughs> so it's not me. This song is sick to rock out to. <laughs> I've headbutted my dresser listening to this song. <laughs> also, commenter Young Jables <laughs> yeah. had this to say. I think he's regretting a crime he committed. What a voice. <laughs> oh, I love that site. I love it too. I like that like Young Jables is like, I think Eddie Vedder committed a crime. But what a voice. Um so one little wrinkle here that I that I that I'm gonna produce here for um for albums are dead a little wrinkle for this episode probably only or any pearl jam episode really is according to pearljam.com the band as mookie blaylock first played once during their first ever show at the off-ramp cafe off-ramp cafe in seattle on october 22nd 1990 the song has to date been played live 339 times i have seen them play it twice in 93 and 2011 Look so at you. i'm doing a real a real deep uh track by track review this week so that's once all right uh what do we got for track two pal here comes chris jericho yes one crazed down her oh so good Hello. Even Flow, the your, second single. Also, your favorite yes. kind of DDT. 
Oh, I love the even flow. Actually, my favorite is the Johnny flow. Oh, okay. Uh, the second single released on April 6, 1992. Uh, the U.S. Uh, so I'm going to give B-sides on some of these singles because uh, they vary. This was a U.S. single. Uh, the B-sides were Dirty Frank, as we talked about before, and a remix of the track Oceans. Um, even flow peaked at number three on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Chart Rock Tracks Chart. Uh, the song first appeared on Stone Gossard's demo as a, demos as a song called "The King," but the style of the song was changed drastically from its original form. So this is one of those fun ones when you listen to original demo and it sounds nothing like it would it would it would uh, sound like on the album. Tremendous. Um, you, I was it you the uh, uh, on the uh, sleepover a few weeks ago who. I uh, put this as a five-star song in your library from the year, the, the year that it came out or something. 1991, yep. Yes. Yep. Uh, Benzene You can hear all of our banter. Um, it's in a nine daily record interview. Mike McCready said, we did even flow about 50 to 70 times. I swear to God, it was a nightmare. We played that thing over and over until we hated each other. I still don't think Stone is satisfied with how it came out. <laughs> It's all in 2009. Well, listen to it. It's terrible. Uh, listen. Oh, my God. Garbage. <laughs> From the Wiccan, the stark lyrics by Vetter for Evenflow describe the experience of being a homeless man. The subject sleeps on a pillow made of concrete and panhandles passersby for spare change. In addition to being illiterate, he may also be mentally ill as he looks insane. When he smiles and struggles to keep coherent thoughts. Thank you, Wikipedia. Yes, thank you. Almost as good as song facts. Song meetings. Oh, yeah. song meetings, yep. Songmeetings.com. All right. Commenter King of Some Island says, <laughs> I think it may be about a heroin junkie. <laughs> Even flow means the heroin flowing into his veins and butterflies are what happens when he gets high. Okay. Very deep. Also, commenter Lidl Angie says, Oh, man, what gorgeous hair that man had. <laughs> Man, oh man, just mesmerizing. And this song kicks rear. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lidl Angie. Uh, according to PearlJam.com, the band asked Mookie Playlock first played Even Flow at their first ever show on October 22nd, 1990. The song has to date been played live 833 times, the most of any Pearl Jam song. I've seen them play it three times in uh. 93. 2003 and 2005. Uh, we should mention for everybody, uh, this recording is going to come out, uh, let's see, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13th, on the 13th of September, 2018. That may change. So yes. This it, was as of September 4th when yeah. I did my research. Okay. So I apologize, folks, if I'm a little bit wrong. Um, so yeah, to date means um, when I when I wrote this. <laughs> Four days ago. You know, I should mention, too, uh, because you say it, like, as a joke. Like, I apologize if I got it wrong in the last four yes. days. Uh, we, I'm, I'm sure there aren't many Pearl Jam fanatics listening to this, but yeah. I know you. I know Mistopheles. I know another guy, Scotty, in, in uh, Philadelphia, all who are, like, massive Pearl Jam fanatics and, yeah. and have exposed me a little bit to that community. Uh -huh. There would be Pearl Jam fanatics who would be like, no, you got the count wrong. I know. So we got to, We have to put that disclaimer in there. Really, all I'm concerned about is how many times I've heard it live. I, well, don't, I don't really care. <laughs> bring it all back to you. It's all about you. It's all about me. Uh, there was a music video for Even Flow. <laughs> uh, the video is just performance footage of the band shot during a January 17th, 1992 show at the Moore Theater in, guess where? Seattle. Um, an alternate studio recording of Even Flow, which was recorded in 1992 with Dave Abrazisi on drums 
was used for the video as the band felt it synced up well with their live footage. So, beauty. Uh, that is even flow. What do we got next? Here we go. Because I don't know. Because I don't know. What is this? Ah. Yes. Not the POD song. <laughs> or the Edwin song. No. It's Pearl Jam. Uh, written by Stone Gossard. Uh, the music. Uh, the first single off the album released July 7th, 1991. Not released in the US, though. Available only via import. So, exclusive to the uh, European and other markets. Um, the cover of the single featured the iconic stickman figure that uh, many people can, will associate with the band um, the UK B-sides for this uh, album the song we talked about before Wash and uh, uh, the studio version of Once a US promotional CD that came out later included Wash and a cover which I've included here as a little special treat for you sorry g- give me the name of the song again you cut out quickly I've got a feeling ah you know what it's not uh, I, I gotta Don't tell you it. it's uh, it didn't here we go I have a I have a live version of it uh, the, your your track for some reason hasn't registered on my iTunes. There, I've got a feeling it's a Beatles cover. It's on the uh, the Alive single, not this version. Though. This is a live version, as you said. Um, Alive charted at number 16 in the UK. It peaked at number 16 on the Billboard Mainstream Rocks Tracks chart. Um, I don't know how. I guess it just got charted, even though it wasn't a single <laughs> in in the in the US. Um, I, I I don't know. Um, the video was nominated for the MTV Video Music Award for Best Alternative Video in 1992. Um, this was, of course, the first track in Eddie's Mama Sudden trilogy and was on the Gosser demos as a song called Dollar Short. From the Wickeye, here we go. Alive has been revealed by Vetter to be part uh, autobiographical and part fiction. When Vetter was a teenager, his mother revealed to him that the man he thought was his father was actually his stepfather. That's not true. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, it is true. The man he thought it was his father was his stepfather and his biological father was dead. Uh, he had met his biological father as a friend of the family. Um, and he knew him. And uh, he had been uh, ill for many years and kind of saw him. And I think he lived with them for a little bit. Um, the first and last verses detail these actual events. But the second verse is storytelling on Better's part. The second part is how he, uh, <laughs> he had sex with his mom. Yeah. 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 Um, on songmeanings.com, uh, commenter Pink Morrison says... <laughs> I believe the great beauty of any art is that it's open to countless interpretations. Don't ever think that you are wrong for mentioning how you see something because it is like dreams. They are your own. You can always share them. Just don't push it on other people if they don't want it. So some sage advice from Pink Morrison. <laughs> Thank you, Pink. Yes. Um, according to PearlJam.com, the band, as Mookie Blaylock again, played this during their first show on October 22nd, 1990. The song has to date 
as of when I wrote this, uh, been played live 764 times, second most of any Pearl Jam song. I've seen them play it three times, 93, 2005, and 2011. Crazy. So that's alive. Uh, we go to track four. Oof, some that fucking face. I know. <laughs> I'll jump in now. We're, okay. we're buttoned up against time. Uh, in a, this is Why Go, written by Jeff Amon. Uh, in a 1991 interview with radio station KLOL in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Eddie Vedder said, the song Why Go was written about a specific girl in Chicago, because uh, Eddie was originally from Chicago, not San Diego. I think her mom caught her smoking pot or something. She was about 13 years old, and she was just fine. I think her mom thought she had some troubles. Uh, when I think it was really maybe the parents that were having troubles and the next thing you know this young girl was in a hospital They kept her there for quite a long time She was so strong that she refused to accept many of the accusations of her doing terrible things when she really wasn't doing anything And the next thing you know, they've been she's been hospitalized for two years. So essentially her parents put her in, a, in an institution That's what the song is about in the liner notes uh, of 10 better dedicated the song to a girl named Heather So he outed Heather on the radio in 1991 um on songmeetings.com. Yes. Commenter Brain underscore Stu says, <laughs> Stu. A few, years ago, my, a few years ago, my best friend was institutionalized by her mother after an argument. Listening to this song helps me get out my frustrations and not kill her mother. Wow. And I was truly going to. <laughs> okay. So Brain Stu talking about how he's going to murder someone, but why go tamed him? <laughs> oh, my. Um, I mean, I'm laughing, but Jesus. <laughs> According to PearlJam.com, the band, as Mookie Blaylock, blah, 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 played the Why Go during a show at the Moore Theater for the first time on December 22nd, 1990. The song has to date been played live 440 times. I've seen them play it twice, 93 and 2011. <laughs> that is Why Go. All right, let's go to the next one. Yes. I love the Nixons. <laughs> we got uh, Black, written by Stone Gossard. Um, never released as a single, but still reached number three on the mainstream rock, mainstream rock chart. So I guess there's a way to do it. Um, here we go. Here's a little taste of the... It's probably my favorite track from the album. Fantastic track. Uh, first appeared on the Stone Gossard demos as a song called E Ballad um, because it alternates between E minor and E major chord progressions. So, um, In 93, Eddie Vedder told Cameron Crowe in a Rolling Stone interview that Epic wanted to release Black as a single, but the band, feeling the song was too personal to be subjected to heavy radio promotion, didn't grant permission. Uh, Eddie said, some songs just aren't meant to be played between hit number two and hit number three. You start doing those things, you'll crush it. That's not why we wrote songs. We didn't write to make hits. But let's hear what the experts have to say. Okay. On songmeetings.com, <laughs> commenter Anarchistador says, <clears throat> I interpret this as a kind of Pygmalion story. The imagery of empty canvas and untouched clay implies a blank slate waiting to be molded into something. It seems to me like an experienced man teaching an inexperienced lover, then genuinely falling in love with her 
and being broken when she leaves him. All right. Okay. Thank you, uh, Anarchistador. Uh, also, hang on. Oh, wait, I got one more. Commenter Johnny B. Bad says, <laughs> I hate this song. I can't stand the ending lines. It kills. It's killing me. It's coming after me every night. Some artists can really reach souls. The scary thing is what happens next. <laughs> and then he and then he blasted confetti out of his uh, <laughs> his bad blaster. I wonder if Johnny B. Bad wrote this while sitting next to a dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> We've used that so many times. <laughs> Commenter M. The B. Letter says, "I was sitting by my dumpster and." <laughs> oh Jesus! Uh, inside references only on albums are dead. Yes, um, according to PearlJam.com, the band is Mookie Blaylock first played uh, Black during their first ever show. Um, the song has to date been played live 567 times. I've seen them play it twice, 93 and 2005. Uh, that is Black, a classic. This would also be where I would believe the vinyl would end side A and we would flip to side B. Yes, indeed. Here we go. What, do we, what, what treasures await us? Oh, those bass harmonics. Amazing. Oh. You would think that that's some kind of a keyboard. It is not. Um, Jeremy. Here we go. Little build. Here we go. At home, Written by bassist Jeff Amon. We can explain the giant, ridiculous bass line. Um, the third single, released on September 27th, 1992. But it wasn't released in the U.S. as a single. Um, the U.K. B-Sides. Footsteps recorded live on Rockline on May 11th, 1992. And Yellow Leadbetter. I would play those clips, but we don't have time. Okay. Uh, Jeremy reached number five on both the mainstream and modern rock billboard charts. It didn't originally chart on the regular Billboard Hot 100 because it was not released as a single, but a re-release in July 95 brought it to number 79. So, you know, four years later, it was a minor hit. Um... Jeremy received nominations for Best Rock Song and Best Hard Rock Performance at the 1993 Grammy Awards. Um, the song takes its main inspiration from a newspaper article about a 15-year-old boy named Jeremy Wade Dele from Richardson, Texas, who shot himself in front of his teacher and his second period English class of 30 students on the morning of January 8, 1991. Um, in 93, Eddie Vedder told Rockline uh, the, the following. He said, some kid did this. It didn't make that. I didn't make that up, and that's a fact came from a small paragraph in a paper which means you kill yourself and you make a big gold sacrifice and try to get your revenge that's all you're going to end up with is a paragraph in a newspaper and uh in 91 vetter elaborated also that the song's lyrics were also inspired by someone he knew in high school um, in san diego who shot up his oceanography classroom so we got uh drawing from a few uh sources there can but you footsteps yeah i'm just playing the other tracks that you mentioned can you correct me on this if i'm wrong yes my impression of jeremy is for a lot of people that was kind of their first introduction to Pearl Jam, right? The the song, like they, I know it was the third single, but yeah, I think it's the one, the first one that really bro- busted them out. And uh, the music video also yes. was a big deal, right? Yes, the video uh, directed by Mark Pellington. They had actually hired another uh, director to, to shoot it. There's two versions of this video: the one they threw away and the one that Mark Pellington directed. It received five nominations at the 93 uh, MTV Video Music Awards, and it won four, including Video of the Year and Best Group Video, so it was big. I would say this was probably the one that broke them the biggest uh, mainstream-wise, absolutely. Um, 
my favorite story about this song. Yes. Well, here's Yellow Leadbetter for y'all. Tell the story while we listen to Yellow Leadbetter. So, uh, we had a group of friends, and we were all talking about um, the song Crazy Mary by Pearl Jam off of the uh, the tribute to Victoria Williams CD that had come out in 1993. And they had done a song called Crazy Mary, as I said. And uh, our friend Dennis Penis, a.k.a. Denny. Uh-huh. Uh, I know it's the other way around, but it's funny to say it that way. <laughs> Denny's all like, listen, they say my name in this song. And we're like, what? And he's like, no, no, like, seriously. And we're like, he's all, you know, there's like a lyric where it's like, take a bottle, drink it down, pass it around. He's all, they say, take a bottle, drink it down, Denny, pass it around. Like, it doesn't say Denny. And he's all, you guys are just jealous that you don't, they don't say your name in a song. And our friend Jeremy was like, ah, <laughs> dude, best. We had a good laugh over that. Shout out to Jay Williams. Um, so back to Jeremy. According to PearlJam.com, the, band's fir- the band first played Jeremy during a show at the Off Ramp uh, Cafe in Seattle on February 1st, 1991. The song has to date uh, been played live 537 times. I've seen them play it twice, 93 and 2005. And that is Jeremy. And Footsteps and Yellow Better, all from the Jeremy single. Good stuff. The currents will shift. Track 7. Like me Ultimately, a pretty like tight little album, right? Ten tracks in the in the primary album. Yeah, absolutely. Um, track seven, "Oceans," uh, written by Stone Gosser, Jeff Amon, and Eddie Vedder. The fourth single, actually, which most people wouldn't, you know, like casual fans probably wouldn't know this. This was a single off all the strong songs on this album. I mean, this is clearly the weakest, and uh, and it's the fourth single released on December seventh, nineteen ninety two. The single, of course, didn't do well charted modestly in Belgium, the Netherlands, and New Zealand. Um, the B-sides on this single were live versions of Why Go and Deep and Alive, performed at the Pink Pop, Fe- Pink Pop Festival in Landgraf, Netherlands on June 8, 1992. Um, from a 2009 Seattle Sound interview with Eddie, someone asked me to put change in the parking meter for them, Vetter recalled. I went and did that and then came back and was locked out. It was drizzling and I wasn't dressed for an outing in the rain. I had a scrap of paper and a pen in my pocket and they were playing this song inside. All I could hear uh, was the bass coming through the wall, this window that was boarded up, so I wrote the song to the bass. So he kind of just wrote lyrics to the bass of another song, I guess. And, um, yeah. According to the Wiki, the music video was filmed in Hawaii in September 92. It was a black and white uh, video that featured scenes of the bands and other people in Hawaii. And, of course, Eddie Vedder surfing. (laughs) Uh, Stone Gossip, they're driving. I need to correct. swimming and running. What's that? I need to correct myself on something. Yep. The album expert here. Oh, it's a tight little album. Ten tracks. Eleven tracks. Oh! <laughs> Jesus. Well done. Well. Good call, because I didn't even think twice. Ugh. All right. Keep going. Um, and so the video was only released to areas, uh, of course, outside the United States. So Pearl Jam kind of sticking their nose up at the States uh, all during the, the release of all these singles and videos in uh, off of ten. Uh, oh, we got a comment here. Songmeanings.com. Yes. Comment there. Rodman89 says, it's just full of emotions. Great. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> According to PearlJam.com, they first played Oceans during a show at the Town Pump in Vancouver on January 11th, 91. The song has to date only been played live 93 times. I have never seen them play it live. Ooh. Yeah. Get on that. Not yeah, a real gotta fan. Get on that. Not a real fan. Track 8, buddy. Leave a message at least I better learn your voice one last time. Daily mind you this good. Be 
solo composition on this album, Porch. Um, the song uh, features an instrumental break that is lengthened when performed live, which during tours allowed better time to climb the stage rigging or dive into the crowd or both. So much stage diving. Um, nice. According to the Wiki, when introducing the song at Pearl Jam's August 23rd, 1991 concert in Seattle, Better stated, this song is about if you love someone, tell him. That being said, on songmeetings.com, commenter Lanta says, I think the titular porch refers to middle America, the kind of dutiful, patriotic flag hosting, hoisting folk who sit on their front porch and watch the world decline, but who never actively protest or seek to enable positive change. They blindly accept what they're told by government, but don't personally do anything about it. So very deep. Wow. Atlanta. All right. Childlight, commenter Childlight says, I don't see what's so hard to get about this song. It's partly political, but partly a call to join hands instead of leaving these brain dead twats like Georgie Bush to run the show. <laughs> um, well, I guess Georgie Bush, the original, right, was around when they made this, this came out. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Though this uh, comment was during the reign of <laughs> the reign, the presidency <laughs> of George W. Bush. All right, then. Um, so, uh, Childlight, thank you for that uh, That very good commentary. Uh, the, uh, according to PearlJam.com, the band, as Mookie Blaylock played this uh, for the first time at the Moore Theatre in Seattle in on December 22nd, 1990. The song has to date been played live 572 times. I've seen them play it three times. 93, 2003, 2011. I just you realized you, you, you've blown one of our gimmicks where I can't ask you, have you seen them? I know, right? Well, I mean, I, I have. I guess you could have seen. You know what we could have done is if we talked about this beforehand, you could be like, "Listen, here's here's what I want to work. Here's what I want to want to put together for tonight. Here's how we're gonna work this one." Yeah, here's. I'm yeah. gonna ask you if you've heard it live, and then you can be like, "Well, yes." Look, I need to get my shit in. Okay, so <laughs> help me work it in. We've got a few more songs left, folks. Uh, this is uh, Garden. Let's take a quick listen. Fuck, I love this song. Oof. I just remember having this on a tape on a Walkman all walking home from Channel Z. Oh, feeling so feeling so sinister after a night of underage dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Garden, written by Stone Gossard and Jeff Amon. Um, this one's uh, in Kim Neely's controversial Pearl Jam biography, Five Against One. She writes this. In some ways... Eddie was no different than thousands of others his age. People who were expressing disenchantment with the soulless consumer culture they'd grown up in. An entire generation shell-shocked by information overload, repulsed by the greed and hypocrisy they'd been force-fed for years by corporate America. Seemed to be yearning for something tangible, something real. They wanted to get back to the garden, just like their hippie parents had. But what do you do if your parents have swiped their tie-dye suits and ties and destroyed the garden? So very deep from Kim Neely, as she fucking skewers Eddie Vedder throughout that book. Oof. It's fucking savage. You know, there's the two things if you want to read, um, you want to just hear Eddie Vedder get torn apart or read about it. There's a Rolling Stone article from like 95 or 96. Just ridiculous. And uh, Kim Neely's book is tremendous. But, oh my God. It's it's just like, does not paint the dude in a good light. Uh, I, I highly recommend it as a good read. 
Oh, oh well, and you know, Garden <laughs> uh, on songmeanings.com, commenter Health Girl says, I think it's about humanity today and how the new world order has us all fighting for their dark, evil war against our own souls and each other. We are easier to control this way. So she's saying, I think it's about humanity today and the new world order. Uh, it's a song written like 30 years ago, but that's okay. Uh, you know what I think of that comment? It's too sweet. Yes. Yes. All right. Um, uh, band played this for the first time in Los Angeles at the Florentine Gardens on February 7th, 91. They've, it's been played uh, live only 149 times. Oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. I have a question, though. Yes. Have you seen it? I have seen them play Garden once in 1993 in Gimli, Manitoba. Fuck, I got my shit in. Thank you. You got your shit in, yes. And you got, well, you got the two sweet in. Yes, I did. That's right. Off the top of the, uh, of the, of the, of this fucking cast, you heard, uh, you heard deep. You're hearing it here again. I'll just get right into it. Um, on the PearlJam.com message boards, commenter Eraserhead says deep is about a child failing to get his swimming certificate he can't get the brick off the floor of the pool. <laughs> okay. Classic troll. Oh. Uh, many others say that it is, get this, about a junkie. Wow. Really? Yeah. I well, thought... it's, 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 it's grunge rock, so it's got to be about a junkie. Right? I thought that it was about a child with psychological problems, but <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's not what they write about usually. Band played uh, first played this at a at a, a show at a in Los Angeles at a club called God Save the Queen on February ninety one. It's been played live two hundred one times. Have you seen it? I have seen them play it once, nineteen ninety three in Gimli. Nice. Let's get to the last track. I have a tattoo of this song across my back. <laughs> That's my first note. Mistopheles has the word released tattooed on his back across his shoulders. <laughs> nice. Did he get it tattooed in front of a dumpster? <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> oh. um, release. Uh, written by the whole band. The music. A true collaboration. Uh, release. The, uh, the song itself concludes after 5 minutes and 20 seconds. The track's 9 minutes and 5 seconds long because the hidden track master slash slave uh, heard at the beginning of the album begins um, on songmeetings.com commenter no code 88 not yes. no code 79 oh wow no code 88 had to say this ed's voice that's his comment <laughs> oh excellent here it is listen uh, to it yes so Eddie Vedder would eventually like stop singing this way it didn't yeah. take long it took him like maybe a year and a half or two years he was all done singing this way he changed his voice considerably because it was all so copied oh yeah well fucking greed all comes out starts singing in that voice ridiculous um according to pearljam.com the band played this uh, at their first ever show the song to date has been played live 164 times have you seen it i have never seen them play release live it's crazy oh my goodness i i am i am so uh so sad uh, that is the um, track by track breakdown. Uh, apologies for whipping through that, but we're 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 up against it here, folks. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the reviews, shall we? Please. So, the first thing, Kurt Cobain hated Pearl Jam's music, and argued that they were commercial sellouts who had to play who had too many prominent guitar leads. And I I, I dug up a little clip of Cobain 
talking about Pearl Jam, and I felt it would be good to include it here. Have you always been friends? What's up with we you never, and Eddie? We never had a fight, ever. I just have always hated their band. <laughs> but it's not like you're friends or anything. No, well, I mean, I, I consider him a person that I really like. I mean, we've had a few conversations on the phone. I, I really like him. I think he's a nice, really nice person. So that's Kurt Cobain, how he really hates their band. Um, <laughs> awesome, because it kind of sets the stage here for the for the feeling in, in 1991. Um, Rolling Stones' David Fricky gave... Um, uh, 10, four out of five stars. He said, he said on 10 Pearl Jam, descended from the late lamented mother love bone hurdles into the mystic at warp speed. Singer lyricist Eddie Vedder sometimes lets his words get way ahead of his good intentions. Focus instead on his voice, a ragged enraged mongrel blend of Robert Plant and James Hetfield. <laughs> I love mongrel. That was just for you. And the Pearl's surprising and refreshing melodic restraint. They ring a lot of drama out of a few declarative power chords swimming in echo. Um, Entertainment Weekly, uh, David Brown gave it a B minus, saying, I find Pearl Jam to be derivative of fellow Northwestern rockers like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and the defunct Mother Love Bone. Well, no shit. Well, then. That's deep. Uh, first of all, Pearl Jam does not sound at all like Soundgarden or Alice in Chains in any way. And Mother Love Bone is the precursor band. Um, and felt that it goes to show that just about anything can be harnessed and packaged. So a B a B minus, but a not a glowing B minus. Mm. Uh, NME gave it a five out of ten. Oh! And accused Pearl Jam of trying to steal money from young alternative kids' pockets. Uh. Um, at the time, the Village Voices Robert Criscow gave ten a B minus, saying, "And this is this is a mouthful." So I I, I just love the way this guy writes. Uh, this isn't the worst of the slew of Seattle albums that are Nirvana's gift to the alternative consciousness. But from skag-dragging Allison Chains and straight heavy Temple of the Dog to psychedelic Stooges' Mud Honey and legendary Hearts' Mother Love Bone, few, if any, sustain and all modulate the same misguided ethos. So I'm picking on the big kids. Already over three million with the band that changed the world stuck at four. Um, what must be understood is that the frame of reference here isn't punk but hippie. At root, this is San Francisco ballroom music. As someone who had it on intelligent, enlightened, and you'd best believe it, hip authority that my own small-mindedness stood between me and the true meaning of blue cheer, quicksilver, messenger service, savage resurrection, and Shiva's headband, I risk acute deja entendu hearing all these white male long hairs play their guitar too long, but not too well. Jesus. There's more, but I'm not going to read it, but it's amazing. Oh, my God. All I right. love it. He would later downgrade it to two stars. What? Uh, the album would, yeah, yeah. The album would fare better with critics as time went on. Uh, in 2003, the album was ranked number 209 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Readers of Q voted 10 as the 42nd greatest album ever. So it has aged a lot better. The critics kind of savaged this uh, early on. So um, I think that 10 has kind of grown into its uh, status over the years, at least critically anyway. So, um, I did not check Pitchfork though. Oh man, we we got to check Pitchfork. Hold on here. On uh, you do. I, I'm gonna give you the honors. Pearl Jam ten review, Pitchfork. Yes, come on, give us that. Give us those fucking goods. Uh, they have good. a review, of course, of the deluxe edition. Yeah, the reissue in 2009. The reissue right? in 2000 and whew, six point seven. Ah. That's a little more pitchforky uh, than our than our recent kind of pitchfork reviews of albums. 
I, 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 you know, it's we don't have time for me to kind of find why. I, yeah. you know, and again, this is the this is a re-release, so uh, ten deserved better than ten Redux and the paltry bonus tracks. Fortunately, the reissue also includes a DVD of Pearl Jam's 1992 performance of MTV Unplugged. The fashions nice. are, of course, dated. Nice fuzzy hat, Jeff Ament. <laughs> or is it nice. Ament? I don't know. And Vetter's stool-bound intensity can be fairly ridiculous, but the DVD is a useful and entertaining document of their intense live sets. There you go. Yeah, you know, and again, the reissue is not anything special. It's The sound is terrible. Um, let's talk about the tour quickly before we sign out here. Um, the 10 tour was the band's first full-scale tour of the U.S. Um, the tour began on September 25th, 91 in Victoria, British Columbia. It continued in clubs through October 17th, 91, where they then joined the Chili Peppers on their Blood Sugar Sex Magic tour as the openers along with the Pumpkins. Wow. Oh, such a crazy bill in 1991. Uh, short stint in December saw Nirvana, Nirvana replace the Pumpkins. It's all Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, and Nirvana. Amazing. Crazy. Pearl Jam went to Europe on their own, playing clubs again from February 3rd to March 13th, 92. Back in North America, they played larger halls at that point. Um, and uh, they played the Plaza Nations in Vancouver with opener Mystery Machine, which I got way too excited reading. Oh, I can imagine. So that would have been like a dream. Um, they went back to Europe. Uh, they, they played a bunch of festivals. And then uh, following a June 26, 92 appearance at the Roskilde Festival in Denmark, they would cancel the rest of their tour. Uh Confrontation with security at that event, as well as exhaustion. And uh, they would come home and play Lollapalooza, which was another ridiculous festival at the time. Um, and so that's all I got. I mean, I'm super biased, so 10 is tremendous. It's a uh, highest recommendation from me. Uh, any thoughts from you? Um, I like it. <laughs> I, you know what? It's a, it's a great album. Like, I... Uh... Uh, it's I, again. This is for me who likes Pearl Jam, but I wouldn't call myself a massive fan by any means. But this is yeah. an all-time great. This is an all-time great album. Um, yeah. I like it. It's a tight eleven-track album, easy to yes. listen to. That that A side, um, chock full of goodness. Indeed. And I love Indeed. me some release. Not enough to get myself tattooed, but uh, release is a great closing track too. It's got all the elements of a great album. Good stuff. Um. What do you got for us next week, pal? Next week, episode 10, uh, we're going to do something very specific to Canada, where we're both from. You, of course, from Winnipeg. I am from Toronto, and I'm going to be talking about a band from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. and They're called Bare Naked Ladies, and we are going to talk about uh, their yes. 1992 release called Gordon, which is uh, an album that if you are stateside, you've probably heard of and know some tracks from it, but... Much bigger deal in Canada. So a very Canadian-centric podcast coming next week. I'm looking forward to it. I've been uh, I've taken a listen, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it. So uh, on that note, um, go just go find us on albumsaredead.com for all your uh, Albums Are Dead needs. And uh, we will... Uh, I'm at megamix.com. I'm Slip with five eyes or Slip. And we will uh, see you in a week, folks. Good night. Good night. Good night.